1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Abortion is an issue like no other. Our attitudes towards it and how we define when life begins determines the very words we use when discussing abortion. We don't even agree about how many people are involved in the matter of abortion. Two people, the mother and the baby, or only one, the mother. And here even the word mother is avoided by many who prefer woman, or in some quarters, pregnant person. Is it a baby or a fetus? Has abortion always had the tacit approval of most Americans and only been criminalized by powerful societal forces, which can change sides dramatically over the decades, as is the case with much of the medical establishment? Or is that something that has been regarded as abhorrent for centuries and only recently been treated as not only necessary, but a badge of pride for the modern woman? How was abortion portrayed in the pages of American publications circa 1830, 1870, 1920, or 1940, and in the media diet of our own day? These are among the many issues discussed in the 2023 book, The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, 1652-2022, to 2022, by Marvin Olasky and Leah Savas. The book is riveting reading, but is not for the faint-hearted. Much of the material is graphic. It will interest those in such fields as legal history, women's history, the history of journalism, the history of medicine, political history, and history in general, and readers with an interest in biography and true crime. The latter term is not inappropriate here, given the book's fascinating account of how many news stories in much of the 19th and early and mid-20th centuries reveled in lurid details of attractive young women murdered after botched abortions or accidentally killed during one, and then dismembered and discovered later due to the ineptitude of the abortionist and the men who had impregnated the women and who feared scandal or marriage to the women they had seduced. The authors also provide detailed accounts of the enormous amounts of money that some female abortionists, such as the notorious Madame Restell 1812 to 1878, made, and the flashy lifestyles and prison sentences that punctuated their lives. The authors show that male jurors were often reluctant to convict abortionists, given many a juror's own complicity in such events and the immense political power that the abortion trade wielded via graft. The book tells heart wrenching stories of women who underwent abortions and traces how the popular press moved over the decades from referring to two victims in such cases to only the woman to eventually hardly covering at all cases when abortions created female and male infant victims, as in, infant, as in the infamous case of physician Kermit, Kermit Gosnell, many reporters and editors preferring to stick to the narrative of female empowerment via abortion. No matter where one stands on the issue of abortion, it cannot be denied that this book movingly, authoritatively tells the story of the women whose lives were shaped by it, as the title says, at the street level. It is model social history and engrossing reading for the general reader and scholar alike. Let's hear from one of the two authors of the book, Leah Savas. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Leah Savas, co-author with Marva Olasky of the 2023 book, "The Story of Abortion in America: A Street-Level History, 1652 to 2022." Thank you for joining us today, Leah.
0: Thank you for having me, Hope.
1: Well, I'm very, i very glad to, because the book was is a very impressive study. It's just incredibly comprehensive and and riveting, as I said in the intro. Um, could you tell us a bit about yourself? I understand that you are the lifebeat reporter for World News Group. What is the World News Group and what does a Lifebeat reporter cover? That is obviously not a job title that corporate legacy media maintain. Is this your first book and whose idea was it for the book? From my reading, yeah. for example, uh, Marvin, sorry, but Marvin was a, is a longtime historian of these matters, but you're, you're a younger generation. Could you tell us about
0: yourself? Yeah, so I started working for World in 2019, and they hired me specifically to um, write about abortion and euthanasia, topics like that. Um, In the last couple years, especially the last half year, um, my focus has largely been abortion, just with all the news on the abortion issue um, and all the changes in the United States when it comes to the law about abortion. But yeah so being on the life beat i um the focus is kind of those um those people in society who are often seen as unworthy of living or um, their lives seen as not quality enough to be alive for instance Mm -hmm. the unborn child or an elderly person who might be suffering or just a burden to their family and so would be a target of euthanasia, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, um, on the life feed, I focus on those individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and at world magazine, we are a Christian organization. We focus on biblically objective journalism, which is not something that you hear other news organizations using. That's not a term that you hear other places. Um, but the idea there is that nobody is truly objective. Um, just in and of themselves. Everyone comes at at issues from a certain worldview, and we acknowledge that world that our worldview is based on scripture. So that is such a blessing to be able to report on the life topic from a biblical perspective. Um, It allows me to consider unborn life as human life and worth protecting. Um, It allows me to write about even undervalued lives as valuable because they are um, humans created in the image of God, regardless of what they contribute to society. They're still worthwhile in God's eyes because they're his creation. So um, that is such a blessing at World to be able to report from that perspective. Um, And I've enjoyed being on this topic, uh, learning more about Abortion, just through this process. It was um, Marvin's idea to write this book. He has written about abortion in the past. Mm. And originally, he wanted to um, just kind of rewrite and update a past book that he wrote in the 1990s. Um, But just in his research over the last couple of years, he realized there was a lot more available in online records, newspaper, flippings available online court records so he didn't want to just do an update anymore he wanted to do a rewrite and um, add on some more recent news so he he got me to help him out with the more recent news on the abortion issue since I was reporting on it um so yeah so it was Marvin's idea but I was so happy to come along for the ride I've never written a book before So it was, it was a learning experience for me, but very enjoyable. And Marvin is a great co-author, a great editor. Um, Yeah, it's been a, it's been a blessing.
1: Well, it's an, it's an impressive debut, and I, I wish I'd made such a splash at such an early age, or ever made a splash. That, that's, that's, that this book will have, because it's, it's really—I I don't know if anything quite like it, because as, as I say, it just covers so many different fields. The, 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 the accounts of the news accounts that Marvin deals with, and your coverage of the later years, like the Gosnell case, which we'll get into in a moment. Uh, one of—but you've talked about your career, and I, one of the people that you, you discuss in the book is, is rather like you, that that you created this whole Lifebeat um genre or, or or profession within within journalism is fascinating you discussed the case of lila rose who became like you she got into it very early in life and she she was galvanized by the efforts to silence her i wonder if you could talk about her background and what and the, the position of, of her own example i don't know if she was an example to you or not but you certainly discussed her in the book very very movingly and make clear what a courageous young person she was and it is still
0: Yeah, early on when I got into reporting on the abortion topic, a couple people came across my radar as being younger pro-lifers who were very passionate about this abortion issue. And um, so, yeah, Lila Rose was one of those people that I recognized early on as being involved on this and, and going to great lengths to expose the evils of the abortion industry. Another person was David Delighton. uh, And they're actually, they have some connections with one another. So that's kind of interesting to to know. Um, But yeah, I remember reading about how Lila Rose first found out about the reality of abortion. I believe it was, um, she was flipping through a book and saw either pictures of uh, an unborn baby or pictures of an aborted baby and just recognize, wow, look at this evil, this great evil of abortion. And she felt this passion to want to expose what Planned Parenthood does. So she would go into abortion facilities with a hidden camera and you know, kind of pretend to be a young younger than she was because she has, like me, she looks younger than she is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so she would go in and pretend to be a young minor who was impregnated by an older man. And um, uh, basically, the people at the abortion facility would advise her to kind of change her, her age or the age of the man who impregnated her in her story, um, or just they would say, you know, you should get an abortion. That was their go to advice. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting seeing her as a young person kind of exposing these things that are happening at abortion facilities, how they're apparently covering up statutory rape. Mm-hmm. Um, in her case, it wasn't actually statutory rape because she wasn't actually raped, but well, um, why would they know, do that?
1: What was the motivation for that to cover, to change the the age of the person of the man?
0: Yeah. So then they would be able to cover up the fact that someone who was uh, legally an adult impregnated someone who's legally a minor, um, it, which is technically, you know, that's illegal. That's statutory rape. It's considered rape under the law. And mm-hmm. so rather than reporting that to the authorities mm. they would tell them to change their change their ages and the records and get an abortion so that you know law enforcement doesn't get involved mm. um yeah so so it's interesting seeing even the reaction she had to when uh, she released the videos and you know Planned Parenthood goes after her and threatens a lawsuit and um she's like hey I'm just trying to keep women safe and you're suing I'm a teenager or you know a young college student and they're suing her uh for exposing some unsafe practices that they have so that's interesting to learn about
1: and she worked with James O'Keefe who is who's is also a notable figure in your book and in the, in the pro-life movement is that correct or
0: yeah I don't think that we talk too much about uh James O'Keefe but he is one person that I have on. Um, uh Researched in other um, outlets, like I've written about him in that world, and yeah, he definitely he definitely was an influence for a lot of the people who are involved in the direct action side of the uh, pro life movement, which would be you know uh, protesting outside of abortion facilities, doing sit ins, um, or doing like the undercover work that David Delighton and Lila Rose um, do or did.
1: And, and David DeLighton has been involved in for years now in, in legal imbroglios because of Planned Parenthood is really trying to shut him down. Could you talk about him? And, and uh, is there any debate within the pro-life movement about some of the tactics of, of David DeLighton that he was impersonating people, but that's just, but don't, I mean, what, what, are, what are the journalistic ethics of that? I'm not, I'm not a professional journalist, so I don't know in terms of undercover work.
0: Yeah, we don't, go into his case too much in the book, but from my understanding in the other reporting I've done, um, technically in California where he did these undercover recordings, from my understanding, it's legal to do undercover recordings if you're investigating a crime. Mm. Um, and his argument is that he was investigating a crime, um, and that even, uh, prosecutors in California have used some of his information that he got to kind of crack down on these these organizations that are involved in the trade of aborted baby body parts, basically. So um, yeah, so it's an interesting argument. I mean, there's definitely a question there from an ethics perspective as a believer, you know, scripture, although it gives examples of of people lying to save someone else scripture never condones lying it you know God never says oh I'm glad that you lied to do this although he does bless people like Ruth who hid um the spies who came to uh Jericho on her roof and let them out without uh telling the people in the city that she had hid these spies um, you know, he, he blesses her, but not for the lie. He blesses her for her faith in God. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting thing to think about as a believer, just, you know, how how should we approach these issues? Um, but from a larger journalistic perspective, and from the laws of California, it does seem like what he did was technically allowed. People have done that um, uh, to investigate the harm, harming of animals, for instance. They have done uh, undercover videos to, you know, catch people in the act of harming these animals. So if if we can do it in those cases, then why can't we do it in these cases of harming other humans, even though they're tiny humans?
1: Yeah, I think his case is fascinating because it's it's an important case because it's gone on for years now. And it, just in terms of the legal casework that's being, the, 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 the th- legal theory that's being um exposed and discussed in that case and also just the injustice of it that he may he's arguing at one point that he had provided information to the authorities and that they're now prosecuting him saying well you can't you can't have it both ways you can't use material that i provided you and and so forth but um on another another topic and getting back to the title of your book or getting back to your book in particular you mentioned you use the word street level in the title of the book and
0: what what do you mean by that exactly Yeah, so that's a term that I actually learned from Marvin, my co-author. He likes to use the term street level in opposition to the term suite level. So the difference between those two terms Mm. is um, suite level is at the level of ideas. You know, pretend you're a person up in an office that's in a skyscraper in New York City. Um, when you look down on the street you're you're seeing it from far above you can't see the details things kind of blurred together you have this um uh, more conceptual idea of the world it's it's at the level of ideas um but then street level is you're actually down in the dirt and in the everyday, happenings of everyday people, um, Mm -hmm. seeing how it's not just ideas, but actions, like how how do their concepts of reality affect how they actually act and live and the choices that they make. So, So instead of just focusing on a legal history or a philosophical history of abortion, we tell the stories of people who have been affected by abortion. Um, So yeah, it goes down to the level of individual stories, individual humans, instead of just ideas and philosophical viewpoints.
1: Well your your section of the book or the entire the entire book has many moving stories at the street level and they're just just really compelling and moving stories of individual women and the, the ghastly experiences that they've had with abortion. And one of the one of the things that's fascinating in your book is that you 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 describe and you chronicle how, how ultrasound technology has made it harder for the pro-abortion side, or they call themselves pro-choice, but I usually say pro-abortion, but they 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 they're, they're, it's difficult for them to maintain that that life doesn't begin very early because the the ultrasound shows it. Could you talk about how ultrasound has really changed the game in terms of women's attitudes and and the laws, some of the laws requiring them to view ultrasound, which are are much in contention.
0: Yeah. So the man who actually came up with the idea and the practice of using ultrasound technology in obstetrics to view unborn children inside of their mothers. He was pro-life and he actually said that, you know, if nothing else, at least in his career, he has uh, debunked the lie that unborn children are just a clump of jelly or like a clump of cells to be exposed, uh, to be disposed of at will. So Um, You know, he knew he recognized this when he um, first saw the implications when he was first introducing this technology. Um, And yeah, so ever since then, there has been a growth of ultrasound technology has become more common Uh, pregnancy centers pretty early on. um, I think the first was in the 1980s, the first pregnancy center to start offering ultrasound technology to help women see the reality of unborn life. Um, But by the 90s, it was really taking off. A lot more pregnancy centers were introducing this as a way to help women recognize that abortion is wrong because it's it's ending the life of an unborn human, not just a clump of cells. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so it's definitely it's definitely brought before the eyes of our culture that unborn life is alive you know it's alive and it's a it's a real being in there there's it's crazy though how there are still arguments about whether or not it's okay to end that life like there are people who will concede that it is a baby but you know mom's life matters more because she's more developed she has more um she has she has more preferences she has more capacities should be able to decide what to do. Um, but I think one thing that was interesting as we were researching for this book and um, writing it, and I was reading Marvin's chapters, um, you can see that early on in the 1600s even in America, you have these cases of men forcing abortions on women that they impregnated. Mm. But the, the culture around them, the communities around them reacted just with shock you know they they actually put these men on trial for murder Mm -hmm. Um, and the surprising thing about that is they did not have ultrasound technology then and yet they knew that it was murder and that's because they had a understand a scriptural understanding of human life and they knew from the scriptures that unborn life you know is human life it is it is valuable to the Lord. An unborn human is in God's image. Um, so, you know, fast forwarding to ultrasound technology today, while it's it's ubiquitous, it's helpful, um, it helps some people recognize the reality of unborn life, it's also somewhat hardening, I think, to some people. And and I tell some of these stories in, in the book about um, people at abortion facilities who say that they've talked to women who who were required to see the ultrasound image of their child, but then still got an abortion anyway. Mm. Um, how could that be? You know, and the the issue there is a heart issue. You know, they're recognizing they see, they see the scientific reality of this unborn human, but still they make excuses because they don't know what scripture says or they don't care what scripture says. Whereas people in the early in early America, they knew what scripture said, even if they didn't know about the anatomy of the unborn child, and they um, they valued that unborn life more than many people do today.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: I think that's an interesting progression. We kind of follow that in the book, the, how even though ultrasound and other scientific uh, progress has allowed us to see the science of unborn life there's a, been a decline in the understanding of scripture and what it has to say about abortion.
1: Yeah, you have some, you're very fair in the book. You give fascinating cases of doctors who have, who observe a late-term abortion, and they're just disgusted and appalled by it, but then they, but then they continue their careers of performing early-term abortion, so it's, it's almost like there, there's a a certain cutoff point for the, the human conscience that people rationalize or they or but you, I think you're very fair to both to both sides of the issue on on how on what 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 an abortion actually looks like and you mentioned the term pregnancy center and I, I want to I delve into that a little bit because people who are progressive or liberals don't necessarily understand what a pregnancy center is as opposed to a, an abortion clinic and when they hear for example here in Oregon we have news of of the FBI investigating pregnancy centers which have been firebombed and attacked and vandalized and people may assume well that's just a planned Parenth- that's a planned parenthood thing but it's a planned parenthood facility was the opposite and i wonder if you could discuss uh what what a pregnancy center is and is there a difference in terminology between a crisis pregnancy center and a pregnancy center and the services that 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 a pregnancy center provides to a woman? for example you discussed that a woman will go ahead with an abortion but one of the people you quote in the book also says that Sometimes the, the the abortion it's not the baby that's the problem, it's her situation, it's her finance, her finances and her, her economic problems. and they make the point that we can help with those. we can address the problem and often it isn't the baby that's the problem. So could you discuss a little bit about the social services that pregnancy centers provide?
0: Yeah, so um there is definitely a distinction between a pro-life pregnancy center and an abortion facility. There are pregnancy centers technically. Um, I I know of at least one, I don't think I can, I don't know of more than one, (laughs) but a pro-abortion pregnancy center that like hands out, um, diapers and, um, refers women to different like counseling services and stuff. I know of one in Indiana, um, but commonly the pregnancy centers that, um, that we hear about in the news and that we read about in this book, um. They're pro-life pregnancy centers, and they're offering women alternatives to abortion. So that, as you said, um, even if they are facing a financial difficulty or, um, you know, a relational problem that's causing them to think that abortion is the best option for them, these centers want to show them that there there are other ways, you know, that they can um, take care of their unborn baby. There are ways that they can have this this baby and continue and not um, not face a total crisis. You know there are people there to help them. So um, it's interesting in the what you mentioned about the vandalism against uh, pregnancy centers. I was actually looking at the recent press release from the FBI. They released information offering um, a reward for anyone who could offer tips in mm. that would help in solving these cases of arson or vandalism at these centers and they listed 10 I think they used the term reproductive health facilities they listed 10 and only one of them was actually an abortion facility so but they classed them all as reproductive health facilities mm. and they're all in fact most of them um covered by uh by the face act so Um, That is the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. That was a law passed in the 90s that was supposed to uh, minimize the efforts of pro-lifers outside of abortion facilities, but technically the language also protects uh, pregnancy centers from these attacks too, um, from any violence. So uh, yeah, so it's interesting though, seeing how a lot of A lot of people in the culture will look at pregnancy centers and say that they're just fake clinics. They're trying to trick women Mm -hmm. um, into keeping a pregnancy. Um, When in reality, they often, the goal of these pregnancy centers is just to give women all the information that there is. A lot of women don't know that there are already resources in their community that can help them financially, that can um, make it possible for them to often raise children as single mothers um so yeah this is like these these centers come around them as a community to help support them and help um, them find solutions to the other problems that they're facing because ultimately the the baby is not the problem it's these other problems that are getting in their way um and and it's also a heart issue so i think a lot of Pregnancy centers are afraid to talk about the gospel, which is unfortunate, but the pregnancy centers that do talk about the gospel emphasize to these women that they, their ultimate problem is not their situation. Their ultimate problem is their heart and how they approach things. Are they approaching things, looking at it from God's perspective and what scripture says, or are they approaching it as, um, as individuals thinking that they're God, you know, they're the God in their situation and they need to figure it out themselves. So, um, yeah, so it's really, it's cool to see that whole range of services that pregnancy centers offer from, you know, giving diapers to women, giving them help to pay for their rent, um, giving them ultrasounds um, so that they can see their unborn child for free, also giving them scriptural counseling to help them, understand what the bible has to say that it's a it's a wide range of services that they offer
1: and even arranging for, for adoptions in some cases which is very helpful to the women yes. who don't, yeah I was going to say because Elizabeth Warren and, and politicians like that they really demonize the the pregnancy centers as if they're these deceptive diabolical institutions where they're often just people giving diapers or not exactly the the, the devil incarnate. Uh, yeah, I wonder you you discuss in the book very uh, very graphically and it has to be done. Um, Dr. Kermit Gosnell and you're a very effective historian of of journalism because you talk about the fact that several several aspects of the case that, that it was undercovered because of bias pro 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 choice pro life i'm sorry pro abortion bias in the case that they just didn't want to didn't want to emphasize the, the, the horrific <laughs> aspects of it in that case, but you mentioned for a fact that the subject matter was gruesome too, and that also cameras were not allowed in the courtroom. And I wonder too, could you discuss what role race played in the, in the, the case of the Gosnell? And this was a case in Philadelphia in around 2013. And what was interesting too, is you talk about the lack of regulation and that was very clear in the Gosnell case because he wasn't investigated originally for, um, the the dirtiness and filth and in and, and inhumane conditions of his abortion clinic, he was involved in oxycontin trafficking, or that was the charge, and that was what mm-hmm. what led to the to the case of the discovery of the abortion problems. Could you discuss that case a bit?
0: Yeah, so in the case of Kirk Gaznell, originally, like you said, they um, law enforcement in Philadelphia raided his abortion facility because they. Traced back these illegal drugs to his facility and found out that there, it, his facility was kind of the hub for a lot of these these drug drug traffickers in the city. So they organized a raid, and when they raided his facility in, I believe the year two thousand eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, when they raided his facility, they saw these horrific um, conditions. They saw uh, just. Um, you know, women in the waiting room kind of moaning, and they didn't seem to be in a good condition. there They found frozen body parts of babies in in like freezers in the building. There were cats wandering around with fleas, and there is urine everywhere. Um, so once they once they saw all of this and saw these aborted babies and their body parts just frozen, um they began investigating illegal abortions and also um killings of the babies after they had been born so um there is also the death of at least one woman um who was basically the issue seemed to be that she was overdosed with um with drugs while they were pr- uh, doing this procedure and um anyway so so there's all this all of this terrible stuff that's happened here, but no one has inspected this facility in years. So um, when they raid this facility, it's been the first time that any officials have been in there for years and years, despite complaints, uh, even complaints about the woman who died at the facility during an abortion. Mm-hmm. So, um, so when we see this go to trial, uh, when Gosnell goes on trial for these alleged crimes um, The I talked to one newspaper reporter who worked at a local news outlet and he was expecting the the courtroom to be packed because mm. he's like you know this is going to be a high interest case we're seeing all of this evidence like it's a it's a horrific story that you know people uh, sadly you know people Find the horrific stories to be more interesting to read sometimes, but he's like, not only is it that, but also this is a big case of of the city and the state not enforcing their own laws. You know, they have laws about how abortion facilities are supposed to operate, and yet they failed to enforce them by failing to investigate these facilities. So yeah, that's um, an important but then, point you
1: make in the book, too, you talk about there are plenty of laws to regulate abortion clinics, but they're just not enforced. And sometimes for yeah. life, people are just saying, just enforce the laws we have. We're not asking for anything beyond that right now. Just enforce what you have.
0: Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so he goes into the courtroom the first day and it's like basically empty. <laughs> you know, there are some people there, but he he was one of the only reporters who was there consistently. Um, throughout the trial, it just didn't get the the mainstream media coverage that he expected, or that a lot of other people expected. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting seeing how how that all went down. And because partially it was like I think you had mentioned earlier the race issue. Mm-hmm. One per one person kind of uh, had this theory that maybe the reason it didn't get enough attention in the media was because it was a story about tiny babies with no real identity. Um, No one knows them, you know, and then women who are like immigrants or um, minority from minority communities. And that was her theory was that um, just the fact that they're from uh, overlooked populations, you know, no one's as interested in the story, which is sad if that's true. It's hard to say exactly what happened, but um, that would be sad. Well, in the
1: book, Nell's case was a case of a, of a surger, surgical abortion, and in the book, you also deal with what's called medication abortions, or and, and the pro life people often refer to them as chemicals because they say that it's not a it's not a medication; it's a chemical because a medication doesn't kill something, but um, yeah. it, in the in that. And that you have a chapter called "Aborting Alone," which is just incredibly moving. And 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 again, it's 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 not light reading. It's very graphic about what happens. And I'd like to just to quote a woman. You describe a woman named Leslie Wolpert describing her her own experience with abortion pills, which she took alone. I, I gather in her home and the home where all this took place. It was once a refuge for me, became a murder scene. And I thought that was very very memorable and, and touching. And um, one of the things that you make to the point too that ironically that this is touted as modern pharmaceutical advances, but you point out that this is actually a reversion to the bad old days of the of the early 19th and previous centuries, of women being forced to take pills often against their will or or without without uh, without a physician interceding, and that's that it also makes the point too that in your book you also say that you make the point that. But the Roe v. Wade was heavily dependent on the reasoning of involving a doctor. The whole the whole cliche that the pro-choice movement uses, which is it's between a woman and a doctor. Well, you point mm-hmm. out that medication abortions abortions cut out entirely, almost almost entirely physicians at all. It's just a woman alone, often on her own, and if something goes wrong, she's on her own without a, maybe a website to consult and gets herself to the emergency room. Could you talk about the whole argument? of the 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 woman the physician and that's
0: that's no longer true right yeah so the one of the big concerns that pro-life groups have about this um you know the rise of the abortion pill and chemical abortions is exactly what you said that um the involvement of medical professionals is very minimal so Mm -hmm. in that case of leslie wolbert that you mentioned um I interviewed her about this story. It was very emotional talking to her about it. Um, I mm-hmm. actually started crying during the interview, just as she was describing like what yeah, she had to go very, through. It's
1: very. I, I say I had the same reaction. It was just so so tragic and traumatic. Just to read about it, much less for her to experience. Yeah, it,
0: yeah. And she was actually, you know, she was there. So it's not yeah. just secondhand. You know, we hear it secondhand, and it's hard enough. But to actually go through that by yourself in your, you know, in this bathroom, in your house, like, can you imagine? But one thing that she said was how she really didn't expect the side effects to be as uh, severe as Mm -hmm. they were. So when it did get pretty bad, she actually called the Planned Parenthood, at least according to her her account, it's hard to say, um, you know, the records, it's been so long, who knows if the Planned Parenthood would acknowledge that. I'm I'm sure they I'm sure they would not, but she says that she called Planned Parenthood and the staff person there told her that her symptoms were normal. Um, but that if it got worse, that she should just go to the ER. So, you know, right there, if, you know, they're not really offering too much support to her as someone who's traumatized by all this blood and, you know, all the things that she's seeing. She she thinks that she saw her unborn child. Um, in the the shower drain basically. And, and just the trauma of that to her was, it's so disturbing. Like she saw firsthand the death of her child and she recognized that she was responsible. She's the one who took this pill mm. um, and she had to bear the guilt of that. But um, one thing about the advice that the Planned Parenthood gave her to go to the ER, that is actually very common with abortion providers they will tell women that if they have complications, they should go to the ER. Um, and they will also tell them that they don't need to tell the doctors at the ER that they had a chemical abortion. Um, they will tell these women that miscarriage and like a natural miscarriage and a chemical abortion look the same as long as the drugs are completely dissolved. Um, you know, no one will know the difference. But other studies show that there are side effects of um or long-term effects of chemical abortions that distinguish it from just miscarriages. So to tell women that it doesn't matter, like it's just the same thing, that's a total lie. You know, that's it's not only is it a lie that masks the reality that you're killing an unborn life, but it's also a lie that um, deceives these women. Who are are taking these pills, and um, now they can look at what the Planned Parenthood told them, and you know, be like, well, they said it's okay, so I'm going to do this, and then they later realize, as Leslie did, that no, that's not, <laughs> this this was an abortion, this was killing an unborn child, and it's not acceptable. So.
1: That's um, well, just in terms of the, the the falsity of the or the lack of da- data collection or statistics on what's actually happening is is not a service to to women obviously that, yeah. that they claim to care about. Uh, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with Leah Savas, one of the two co- two authors of the book Twenty Twenty Three Book, The Story of Abortion in America: A Street Level History, One Thousand, Six Hundred and Fifty Two to Two Thousand and Twenty Two. Well, yeah, also, too, in terms of medication abortions, one of the great public services that you do in the book is you talk about there is a, an abortion reversal treatment that with if women like Leslie change their minds and there isn't very there's I don't see there's any coverage of that in the mainstream media because they don't want people to be able to reverse the abortion but could you talk about the the lack of information and 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 the, this technology that, that it, it's it enables women if they change their mind and many many probably do because they're alone at home and they might think well I do I'm not sure I'm, I should do this
0: yeah so in one of the final chapters I get to tell the story of this um young mother named Hannah Ranowski. she in 2021, Uh, took the first part of the chemical abortion regimen and then regretted it. And the next day before taking the second pill in the regimen, she contacted a pregnancy center that she had visited before and asked them or told them that she began the chemical abortion, but felt like she made a huge mistake. Is there anything I can do? She had read online and seen online that if you um, don't complete a chemical abortion, if you do the reversal process, that you could die, you could bleed out. So she was a little nervous about it, but um, when she got information from the pregnancy center uh, and found that it was possible to be able to um, to halt the effects of the chemical abortion, uh, she decided to go through with it because she really regretted um, that she was ending the life of her child. So. Um, she was able to get the treatment. It's progesterone treatments. Um, and you take the pills and it halts the effects of the mifepristone, which is a drug that basically blocks progesterone. So the progesterone treatments are supposed to um, counteract that blockage, I guess. Um, and there are studies that suggest, um, and these are studies that pro abortion groups point to, these studies suggest that it's unsafe to. Um, not take the second drug in a chemical abortion, and therefore this abortion pill reversal treatment is unsafe. Um, But these studies totally discount the reality that unborn life, you know, that's a life, you know, that's a life that the mother wants to save in these cases, and that the real danger is not the progesterone treatments, but the initial drug the mifepristone that blocks the progesterone so um, if you look closely at these studies it really does show it's not the progesterone that's the problem it's the mifepristone that's the problem mm-hmm. um, so when they say that abortion pill reversal is unsafe or unproven well they need to look twice at themselves and recognize that in reality the mifepristone the drug and the chemical abortion is not tested as it should be. We haven't, uh, when they approved it in 2000, it didn't have sufficient testing to show um, what the actual long-term effects were, uh, whether it was safe for the women, obviously it's never safe for the the baby, um, but even the safety for the women, they kind of glossed over that. So um, with this abortion pill reversal treatment, pregnancy centers are able to help mothers who regret what they did Save their unborn babies, and it does have over uh, a sixty percent uh, success rate, uh, and it it's more successful the sooner the mother starts the progesterone treat, treatments after taking the mifepristone. So it's not guaranteed to work, but mm. it um it has helped a lot of mothers save their children um, mm. from a decision that they regret.
1: Well, one of the the interesting things too in your book is that you make the point that they abortion pro-abortion side is trying sometimes tries to avoid using the word abortion although there's a division among that camp because some people say shout your abortion and be proud of it and others are, are preferring to 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 use language that shape that hides what's actually happening. And you refer to the use of the euphemism such as missed period pills. What's a missed period pill
0: <laughs> yeah so a missed period pill is actually just an abortion pill mm, yeah. <laughs> but with a different name. Um, and this this actually harkens back to some of the stories that Marvin tells in his chapters Definitely. about yeah, abortionists who advertised their abortive drugs, but since abortion was kind of a no-no in the culture at that, that time, they would refer to it in magazine and newspaper ads as um menstrual regulation pills language like that i can't remember the exact terminology but it was basically the idea was you know this will bring your period back um it, it, and they didn't they didn't say that it was an abortion drug you know so when we see this popping up again today um i've noticed that groups that are promoting the missed period pill which like i said is is just the same drugs in the same dosages as a chemical abortion drug, um, people who promote it say that it will help some people, some women who who have a stigma against abortion um, feel more comfortable taking the drug because they don't actually know. It The idea is you take it without taking a pregnancy test first or getting an ultrasound. So you don't know for sure if your period is just late for some other reason or if it's late because you're pregnant. So then when you take the pill and your period comes back, you'll never know for sure if you killed your child or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of the idea behind that, but it's also just so deceptive and masks the reality of abortion um, and the reality of ending an unborn life.
1: I wonder, could you tell us your book came out or was in press, I believe before Dobbs was decided. So for example, my copy, does not have the epilogue because it, it's a it's a galley copy could you tell us what how how did Dobbs affect the epilogue of your book and and what and were you surprised by why anything that came after Dobbs that in terms of of the, the the reaction of both sides it seemed like the the pro-life movement was a little bit unprepared in some ways for for how how to what to do at the state level quickly to implement some of these things or, or were they or, or am I misreading that? How did you how did you see what happened in the in months immediately following the Dobbs decision?
0: Yeah, so when we started working on the book, um we had started talking about it way back in 2019 and we started writing most of it in 2021. Um we at the time So in 2021 is when they decided to take up the Dobbs case. The US Supreme Court agreed to take up the Dobbs case. But even when they agreed to take up that case, Marvin and I didn't expect that the case would result in the overturn of Roe v. Wade. We thought it was more likely that the case would, uh, that the US Supreme Court using the case would uphold the Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks, which was the the law that pro-abortion groups complained about in the lawsuit, the Dobbs lawsuit. So um, so we thought that it would change some things on the abortion issue, but didn't realize it would be a total overturn of Roe v. Wade. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of pro-life groups were also in the same boat. Um, I, they, In some ways they were prepared. A lot of states had already passed laws that they're commonly known as trigger bans. So mm-hmm. basically laws that would take effect um, protecting unborn life from conception. Um, once the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade or another similar thing happened, uh, so a lot of states had those in place. But I think a lot of people were surprised that Dobbs was the case that allowed those to go into effect. So, um, but we knew we knew that we'd have to save a little time after we submitted the initial draft of the book. Uh, we'd have to save some time to go back and write a chapter 50 and an epilogue kind of talking about the implications of whatever the court decided in Dobbs. So then when it ended up being an overturn of Roe v. Wade, um, I was like uh, just watching what was happening in all the different states and trying to summarize in a chapter length all of these changes. And I was like, wow, there is so much happening. It's hard to stay on top of all of it. But at some point we had to just turn in the chapter. And I was like, I know a lot of things are going to change, but this is what has happened up to this point. And the future is a big question mark in a lot of ways of how the Dobbs decision will affect the United States in the long term.
1: And yeah, one of the most useful aspects of your book, too, is that you discuss divisions within the pro the pro-life movement. For example, in Ohio, there would in the for, for example, there would be divisions over whether or not in terms of strategy that was a heartbeat built a good idea and should we were we not do that is it is it are there other 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 strategies we should pursue and I thought that was really interesting that you discuss within the, the different the, the, the same camps you would discuss especially the pro-choice the pro-life camp We thought was really interesting about people who you talk you talk about incremental changes versus big picture or big 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 bold moves movements could you discuss a little bit about that
0: Yeah, so that's been an ongoing struggle within the pro-life movement, different groups thinking that uh, you need to go for uh, total uh, laws that will make abortion illegal in all cases from conception. Uh, Other groups say, well, if we do that, then uh, the courts won't allow it to stand or, you know, if we push for a bill like that, lawmakers won't vote for it. So we have to go for this more incremental route of, okay, well, we'll make abortion illegal after 20 weeks. And then if we can, we'll make it illegal after 15 weeks. So there is definitely that disagreement among um, pro-life groups. And I think we'll continue to see this be a big issue in the coming weeks and months and years after Dobbs. Uh, And there are some groups also that argue that we should just make um, abortion illegal by adding protections for the unborn human to homicide laws so then homicide laws would just apply across the board to um to even the deaths of unborn children. So uh you know, there's all these arguments, all these um differing views on this issue and it does it does cause, I think a little slowdown of the the progress to, get rid of abortion in the country. Um but you know everyone has different convictions and some people come at it from a more pragmatic perspective, other people have a more um ideological perspective. So, yeah, so we'll see how this turns out in the coming years.
1: Well, we're getting towards the end of the interview and I just wanted to ask two more questions. Like what what you the, as I say the the book is full of these these interviews and recollections of people that you interview from lawyers to legislators to activists and was there one in particular to, to women who've experienced abortion could you was there one in particular that was particularly haunting or poignant that you remember one yeah you so
0: uh, yeah I think I mentioned Hannah Renowski earlier mm-hmm. I think her story in particular was meaningful to me Just because she was so young, uh, she's in her early 20s when she was pregnant with um, the child that she started to abort, but then did the abortion pill reversal. She already had two kids. Um, And I I think what was touching to me though was she was in Texas and it was right before the state's heartbeat bill went into effect in September, 2021. So she actually thought that abortion was illegal in Texas for her at the time, she thought that the heartbeat bill had already taken effect, but it it wouldn't take effect until the next month. So she said that she was upset to find out she was pregnant, but was also kind of relieved that it was that abortion in her mind was illegal, that she couldn't get an abortion because it made her decision so much easier. But when she found out that abortion actually still was legal um, without really the six week limit that would later be in place because of the heartbeat bill. She said it was kind of upsetting because then she had this new decision that she had to make, uh, mm. like whether or not she should get an abortion. And also, you know people in her life were kind of telling her that abortion was the obvious option for her, the obvious way to go in this case. Mm. So so I think her story in particular, I got to see the reality that, the law does affect how people approach the abortion issue. You know, it affects how women make their decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, the, obviously there are going to be women who will go to a different state to get an abortion um, if abortion is legal in another state, but not legal in their state. But the law is a protection to that unborn child, but also to that woman mm-hmm. to prevent her from feeling pressured into this Um so yeah, I think her story was probably the most meaningful to me.
1: Absolutely. I felt that the women were were not, were did not, could not come under the same amount of pressure from men who wanted the child aborted that if they were in a state that were abortion is very easy to obtain. Um with that well, I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on now?
0: So I'm continuing my coverage of abortion at World News Group and doing my weekly vitals roundup and um, my newsletter that goes out every Tuesdays. Um, so yeah, so that's what I'm doing mainly. I have been brainstorming, what could I write next? What's <laughs> my next Good book? Be? <laughs> but so far, nothing has quite jumped out at me. We'll see what happens. Um, certainly, as I continue to report on the abortion issue, I'm sure that many ideas will come to mind. So um, maybe something down the road.
1: Well, absolutely. There are constant de- technological developments and scientific s- advances and and that have to be reported on by enterprising reporters like you. And I'm very grateful that you're out there on the beat. And with that, I will just thank the writer we've been talking to today, Leah Savas, co-author with Marvin Olasky of the 2023 book, The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, 1652 to 2022. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, Leah. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.